For where we are in our study, we're in Revelation chapter 8, but we're not going to be going to Revelation chapter 8 tonight because Revelation chapter 8 begins the opening of the seventh seal uh, in the seven sealed scroll. Um, I honestly believe that the first six seals all occur in the first half of the tribulation period or in the first three and a half years. I believe the seventh seal, though, when Jesus opens the seventh seal, those events that are going to happen when he opens the seventh seal are going to happen in the second half of the tribulation period, in the last three and a half years. Now, one thing that might help you make a little bit more sense is, in the, uh, in the first six seals, whenever he opens just one seal, one thing happens. But when he opens the seventh seal, which we'll get to in a few weeks, when he opens the seventh seal... Seven trumpets are blown and something happens with each trumpet. And seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out and something happens with each bowl. So 14 things happen when he opens the seventh seal. That's all going to happen in the second half of the tribulation period. Uh, as I was uh, preparing for this and talking with some guys that I respect and, and doing research and all, uh, and one of them being Tony Kessinger, a friend of mine, he and I were talking yesterday at lunch, and I was talking about where we're going and what I prepared for where we're going. And as we talked about it, we both came to the conclusion that it would be better for us not to go into the seventh seal just yet and deal with what happens in the last half of the tribulation period until we deal with the midpoint of the tribulation period. Because the midpoint, the, at the, we're, there's, a, there's a major event that happens at the midpoint, and from there on, a lot more things will make sense if we study that. So, what, through that, I then said, okay, Lord, how are we going to go about this? And we're going to do a long, hard study, hopefully not too hard, uh, of the book of Daniel tonight. We're going to be covering chapter 2, chapter 7, talk about chapter 8, end of chapter 11, and all of chapter 12 in the time that we have. So, with that said, let me pray for us. And we'll get into it. Father, as we uh, open your word tonight, I thank you for the fact that I, I know that you have directed what, what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to go. I thank you for this opportunity again to come and to study your word and for those that are here. And, and Lord, we just uh, again uh, ask you to do what you've been doing. Open our eyes to see what this book is about and help us to understand uh, where we are and what's going on in the world and what will be. And uh, Lord, again, thank you for the fact that you want us to know more than we even want to know. So you're going want to speak. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I've said before, there are a lot of people that are, have read the book of Revelation, and there are a lot of pastors in churches around the country that really don't deal with it, to be really honest with you. If you look around, you'll notice there are a lot of ministries, um, parachurch ministries and organizations that are dealing with end times things, but a lot of churches just stay away from the topic. Part of the reason is a lot of pastors today don't understand the book, but it's because they try to read the book by itself. And, and there's actually, unfortunately, a dearth of pastors today who really understand the whole Bible. And part of the reason is, and I don't try to not get too much off on a tangent, is people today have misunderstanding of the role of the preaching pastor especially, and they're expecting him to be visiting and going to hospitals and overseeing committees and doing all this other stuff. And most pastors today don't have the time to really devote to deep study of the Word of God in order to feed the, feed the flock. Because of that... They don't understand the fact that the whole of Revelation, almost, has been already written throughout the rest of the Bible. The book of Revelation, if you read it by itself, it's going to be confusing because as we touched on last week, parts jump around and things happen, but actually that's not supposed to happen until chapter 19, but it's mentioned in chapter 11 and these types of things. It can be very confusing. But if we take the time, like we've been in this study, to compare the book of Revelation with the whole of Scripture, all of a sudden, when you put it all 
together. The book of Revelation comes to life. It becomes very easy to understand. There still will be parts we don't understand, and that's okay, as we looked at at the end of last week. And so what we're going to do tonight is, is we're going to take a lot of looking at Daniel and some of the visions that Daniel had, one that Nebuchadnezzar had, and we're going to see that God actually gave a picture of what the book of Revelation is talking about many, many, actually 2,600 years ago. God gave a picture of what the book of Revelation is going to be talking about. So start in chapter 2, uh, we're going to start in verse 24 of, of the book of Daniel. Now, to set this up, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream in the middle of the night, and he doesn't know what it means, and he wants his wise men to interpret it for him. And so he calls them all in, and he says, I had a dream, and I want you to interpret it for me. They said, sure, tell us the dream. He said, no, that's not how it's going to work. He said, how? The way I'll know that you're able to give me the real interpretation of the dream is, you got to tell me what the dream was, and then the interpretation. Well, they all freaked out, and they said, wait a minute, there's nobody who's able to do that. How can we tell you what your dream was? Just tell us your dream, and we will tell you what the interpretation is. He said, no. The way I'll know that you're not making up some interpretation is to have you tell me the dream first. Well, the, then, then he said, if you don't do this, I'll have all of you put to death, and your families, and we'll level your houses. Well, Daniel was one of the wise men. He wasn't there when this conversation happened with Nebuchadnezzar. But they, he sends his man out, men out to go kill all the wise men. Of course, they come to Daniel. Daniel says, hey, hang on a second. Give us a couple t- days to pray about this, and I'll seek, seek God. Daniel then gets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, to join with him. Actually, their names in the Hebrew are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. But we know them, unfortunately, as the other three, uh, from their Babylonian names. He gets them to pray with him. God gives him the interpretation of the dream. He gives him the dream and the interpretation, and here's what it is. It says, Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to, to the king at, at once and said... I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also Belshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. 
after you another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so will it crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. As you, as, and just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself, it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Alright, so now Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He doesn't know what it means. He says, tell me what the dream was, and I'll know that you are able to interpret it. God gives Daniel most likely the exact same dream. Uh, and then Daniel is able to interpret it. He then, we're going to break it down. He tells, he tells Nebuchadnezzar this. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of what, what country right now? Babylon. And he's pretty much ruler over the whole known world at that time. He, his kingdom is that large. All right, so the head of gold represents uh, Nebuchadnezzar or the, 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 the reign of Babylon. After Babylon is going to come another one world ruler, if you will, and it's going to be a little bit inferior to Babylon. It's going to be silver. And so the chest and the arms of silver actually represents Medo-Persia. Okay, The Medes and the Persians come in. And actually, if you were to take the time and go through the book of Daniel, put a bookmark here real quick. <clears throat> go to uh, uh, Daniel chapter 5. Excuse me. Now, this might be a little confusing for you, so stick with me here, because, again, we keep looking for things chronologically, and that messes us up sometimes when we read the Scriptures. Alright? We see here in chapter 5 that King Belshazzar gave a great banquet. Alright? Thousands of his nobles. Alright? This is another king of, of Babylon. Okay? Alright? Now, go to, you see, chapter, go to chapter, uh, where is it here? Chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent. Alright? At this point, the Medes and the Persians are in power, and Daniel's still a wise man in that kingdom, but the Medes and the Persians are in, in power. Okay? Now go back to chapter 3. I'm oh, sorry, not, not chapter 3. Uh, chapter... No, not 2... Let me get it here. Chapter 6. Now in chapter 6, alright? So in chapter 5 we had a Babylonian king. Chapter 9 we had a Medo-Persian king. But in chapter 6, who is it? Darius. And if you read the story of Daniel and the lion's den, they made the law and they sealed it and it was what kind of law? In accordance with the Medes and the Persians. So as you read Daniel, you're going to find that a couple of these stories are actually flip-flopped in chronology, but they're true stories, okay? So, but 
what happens after Babylon is the ones that take over for Nebuchadnezzar or after Nebuchadnezzar and take over Babylon become the Medo-Persians. All right, and that's what the chest and arms of silver represent. Then after that, he saw, sees on this statue there's going to be another kingdom, and that's going to be the belly and the thighs of bronze, which represent Greece. All this will be make more sense, a lot more sense as we continue in Daniel tonight. But just take my word for it. All right, the next kingdom is going to be Greece. All right, and then after that, the legs of iron represent who? Any idea? Rome. Rome comes after Greece. Now, he also, though, sees that not only are there two legs of iron, but he also sees that there are feet mixed of iron and clay. And this is actually referring to the rebuilding of the Roman Empire, if you will, in the very, very last days, which is the time period that we're living in right now. And you got the ten toes, and we'll get into a lot more of that in a little bit. But you will see that there's a rebuilding of the Roman Empire in the last days. Now, I've got a book here on Daniel, uh, and I want to just read you one section here. Um, and this guy says, he says, I believe that the age represented by the toes of, the, of mixed of iron and clay refer to the present age. If that is the case, you may well ask, then what about the 2,000 years that elapsed between the period of the iron legs, the time of the Roman Empire, which saw the first coming of Jesus and the present age? This is the period I call the Gospel Age. And I believe that God did not disclose this Gospel Age of Jesus Christ when He gave revelation to the Jewish prophets because these 2,000 years are the age in which God calls His bride, the church, according to His special providence. This is why in Daniel's prophecy, the description of the Roman Empire is immediately followed by a description of the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth. That is, Christ's coming to the earth. The ten toes of both feet thus show that the ten nations will be somehow united in the former territory of the eastern and western parts of the Roman Empire. Yet this unity will be difficult to maintain because some of the member countries will be ruled by imperialist or authoritarian regimes, while others will be countries ruled by democratic governments. Such a unity involving nations governed by different political philosophies can only be incomplete. You may ask whether such a period will actually come in history. If Daniel's book is an accurate and sure prophecy, then this age is without doubt the very age of the toes. And if these toes, the ten nations, are, are on the way towards unity, we are sure to be approaching the end of the world. What is happening then around us? The movement to unify Europe in the former territory of the Roman Empire has been briskly underway since 1958. The headquarters of the European Economic Community was established that year in Brussels, Belgium, Excuse me. Its task has been to unify Europe economically, and now plans are being laid for a political unity as well. Presently, we cannot predict with certainty when this political unity will be accomplished, but one thing is certain, unless Europe is unified, it cannot survive. Its leaders know that it cannot compete with the superpowers of the world in its present fragmented condition. Consequently, by divine providence, which works in history and in nature, Europe is slowly marching toward unity, and that unity will be first accomplished economically and politically. At a certain day and hour in our lifetime, I believe we will hear through the news media that the unity of ten nations of Europe has finally been achieved. All over Europe, they will have elected their representatives to the European Parliament, and the European Parliament will have elected the President of Europe. Then the drama of the end times will speed up dramatically. According to my understanding of other passages from the Bible, especially in Revelation, in that period, the Antichrist will arise and enter into a seven-year treaty of friendship with Israel. Then the Great Tribulation will start, and around that time, the church will be taken up into heaven. The church will be swept up by the wind of the Holy Spirit, and eternal destruction and tribulation will come upon the people remaining on this earth. Now, <clears throat> this individual here actually wrote this book in 1990. I don't know if any of you have ever been following in the news or not, but they've actually come to an agreement on who the next or the first president of the European Union is going to be. Has anybody heard who it is? 
it's most likely going to be Tony Blair, uh, that used to be head of, of, of Britain. And so they have all come to an agreement that he's going to be the first president of the European Union. That election's next month, and at the same time, I don't know if many of you are following it, there's something kind of sinister going on in Denmark in, uh, in, De- in December. Uh, there is this uh, um, big conglomeration of all the world governments. It's about, quote-unquote, climate change, um, but it's happening in uh, Copenhagen, and actually I've read and studied on it. Uh, our president is going to go sign this treaty with all the other nations of the world, and actually in some of the first three lines of this treaty, it talks about a one-world government. They're coming together for the purpose of quote-unquote climate change, but part of the issue is this. They say in this treaty that we in the West... Um, we owe it to these other third world countries uh, to give them money by signing the, part of the signing of the treaty is giving them money because um, we've been burning all the CO2 and they haven't uh, and so we've been, we've been damaging the earth and the world and to make it up to them we're going to make this one world peace treaty one world government and part of it is us giving them money it, it, folks, if people even really knew what was going on they'd be, they'd be shocked but it's going, it's going to happen in December, early December. Uh, the 6th through the 18th is when all this is going to be going on in Copenhagen, Denmark. And uh, it's just unbelievably amazing. But what I wanted to read to you from this book was simply this. We see in this prophecy that we see that there are four kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, then Rome. And then at the same time in the prophecy, and it's hard to see unless we have the insight that we have now from history and from time and from Revelation... At the bottom of that Roman two legs of iron, we see the feet mixed with clay and iron. And that's pointing to the rebuilding of the empire in the last days. And so just keep in your mind the ten toes. All right? Any questions about Nebuchadnezzar's dream before we move on? Thoughts? Things you want to share? All right? All right, now he's been given who's going to, what's going to be happening in the days to come. Go with me now to Daniel uh, chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like, uh, like that of a man, and had the heart of a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. 
This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was like flaming fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints. The people of the Most High, his kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, Daniel now has has a dream and he has a vision. And he sees four beasts come up out of the sea, which represents mankind. The first beast looked like what? A lion. Looked like a lion. It had two wings like an eagle. All right, And then the, the wings were stripped off it, and then it was to stand up like a man. This is representing Babylon. All right. If you haven't seen any of the pictures of some of the, of the architecture and some of the statues they had back then, you'll see a picture of a lion with wings on it. That was something they used a lot. And if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar's life, remember, he became very, very proud. And God had him do what for seven years? Live like an animal. And he had, he had feathers like a bird and that kind of stuff. And he ate grass. And then at the end of that time, he was stood back up on his feet like, like a man. This first beast that he sees that looks like a lion represents Babylon. The second one is what? It's a bear. And the bear is Medo-Persia. Okay? Uh, And then at the same time, we have leopard, which is what? 
Greece, Leopards Greece. You're going to see that these are the exact same four kingdoms that Daniel saw when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream. And if you know anything about Greece, they conquered the same Israelites. They're conquering the same area of the world. You've got to keep this in mind for what we're looking at. Remember, the Bible and, and God's plan is centered around the nation of Israel and that area of the world. And so, at that time, Babylon, Babylon had that whole area. They had taken Israel captive, remember, because of their disobedience from God. Uh, then the Medo-Persians took over that area and actually increased it a little bit. And then the Greeks came in. And who was the leader of, the, of Greece at that time? Real famous. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is the one who did. And actually, he was unbelievably fast in his ability to conquer worlds and to spread. That's why the leopard represents him. All right. But after him, um, actually, go back to the leopard. It had it had what? It had four four horns on it. All right. I'm sorry. It had four wings. It had four wings on it, like that of the bird. And it, I'm sorry. And four heads. If you know any history. After Alexander the Great, when he died, the kingdom that he had conquered was divided into four kingdoms to his four military commanders. That's when you start hearing about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and all that kind of stuff. That's during that time period. All right. And then the fourth beast is Rome again. But again, the tricky part for us is, not only is it literally the Rome that happened back then and was living around the time of Jesus... It's also the rebuilding of the Roman Empire, and that's why you see this beast, but it's also got ten horns. Um, and that is referring to the last days and the rebuilding of the European Union. But when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to be a little horn, but he's going to come and he's going to take over and subdue three of them. And he's going to, so there's only going to be a conglomeration now of my math here. Uh, there's going to be seven of them. You know, or eight actually, because he's gotten rid of three and he replaced that one. So just kind of keep that in mind, that, that thing. I honestly don't believe that we're going to be here to see this actual take place. I, but all I know is the Bible says that the Antichrist won't be revealed. The law, man of lawlessness won't be revealed until he who restrains is taken out of the way. And my understanding of Scripture is the one who restrains is the Holy Spirit's action through the church, the salt and the light. I think that after the church is removed... That's when the Antichrist will, be, Christ will be fully revealed. Now, that doesn't mean he's not alive today. I actually personally believe he is for a lot of reasons. And if you want to ask me later on, we can get to that. We don't have time to tonight. But I believe he's alive today. And he might be somebody we know. But we just don't know him as the Antichrist. And it might not be. We might even see him come into power. But we don't know that he's the actual Antichrist until after we're gone, I believe, is what the Bible teaches. But again, we see Daniel's dream now in this vision. The exact same four kingdoms, he's been told. All right. By the way, since Rome, there hasn't been this one world government, has there? No. Now, there have been lots of tried. Can you name anybody that's tried? Germany. Germany, yeah. Yeah. Iran's trying it now and all these types of things. But, it's, but in that area of the world is going to be a rebuilding of the Roman Empire, that area of the world, and it's going to be a, a conglomeration. There's some that think the Ten Kingdoms are already, uh, already in already there. You have realized this book that I read to you was written uh, 20 years ago. Uh, there are those who think that they, they exist, but there's been so much upheaval and turmoil, but they are finally coming together in full agreement, and like I say, they're electing their first president uh, in, the, in the days to come. All right? So that's what we need to understand now. Daniel had the same four, um, four nations. Okay? Now, chapter 8 of Daniel, we're not going to read, but if you just take a look at it, you'll see it talks about Daniel's vision of a ram and a goat. All right, Daniel 8 tells of the vision of the ram and the goat, which represent Medo-Persia and Greece. 
But the interesting thing is, I want you to do this later on if you're really into this. It would be very valuable for you. you. If you have a study Bible, it will break it down for you in the notes at the bottom as well. But the details of the prophecy of chapter 8 are amazingly specific and have been proven historically to be accurate down to every single last detail. To be honest with you, the the prophecy in in chapter 8 and some of the chapters coming that we're going to talk about tonight are so specific and so detailed, there are a lot of people that don't believe Daniel was written back when it was written, around 500 B.C. They think it was written in the hundreds B.C. because there's no way that anybody could predict as accurately as as he predicted what was going to happen next. And, and you're going to see as we get uh, later on, uh, but it gets going in when they get into the kings of the north and the south. They'll even talk about who's going to marry who. And every detail of these prophecies came true. It's just been amazing, which is just, again, further evidence everything we see here is going to happen. But I think I read somewhere there were 136 prophecies that have already come true to the, the littlest detail that were predicted long before they all happened. All right? So just keep that in mind. And also, we see a foreshadowing in chapter 8 of the Antichrist. It's a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who is talked about in chapter 8. And we're going to see him, we're going to see him talked about some more coming up in chapter 11 as well. But Antiochus Epiphanes came out of the end of... Remember, Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided into four kingdoms. And then you have the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Antiochus Epiphanes came out of that uh, uh, group of leadership. And he actually came into the Jewish temple and offered pigs on the altar. Sacrificed pig's blood on the altar. I'm sorry? Yeah, it was a desecration for sure. It was like the lowest thing you could do to a Jew. Because remember, they weren't even allowed to eat the, 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 the pork. or and They weren't allowed to touch it. And he offered pig's blood on the altar to desecrate the temple. Alright? So... We'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit as we go on. But I just wanted you to know about chapter 8 uh, if you want to do the study later on. But for where we're going tonight, it wouldn't do us any good to just break down Medo-Persia and Greece. But just know that they're talked about in great detail. Now let's go to chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. A very familiar passage we've already broke down in study. So we're not going to go into it in too much detail. But we're going to take a look at this again to kind of put it together with what we've looked at so far. Alright, Daniel's been praying and he realizes, remember, that, that the, the captivity in Babylon was going to be 70 years. He realizes it's getting close. He's praying about the return to the city of Jerusalem. And verse 20 says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. 
In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, what I want us to look at, we've already looked at how this is a prophecy talking about how there's going to be 490 years left for the nation of Israel. Then the clock started ticking from the time that... uh, um, Artaxerxes decreed that Nehemiah could go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. From that point, the clock started ticking, and there were 49 years, and then there were 62 sevens after that, which were the 434 years. From that point, from finishing the building of Jerusalem until Jesus was crucified, which literally we looked at already, happened to the day. But then, as we saw in the prophecy there about the legs of iron and then the feet of iron mixed with clay, there's a, 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 a stop that's not really mentioned in the prophecy, which we know now as the church age. And Israel had been put on hold. Remember, they rejected the Messiah. God scattered them to all the nations of the earth like He said He would do. This wasn't a captivity in one city or one nation like it was before. It is now scattering to all over the world. And they were scattered for almost 2,000 years. The Bible, though, said, though, in the last days, God would regather Israel, bring them back into the land, and He would finish this last seven. Now, we see here that we get a better idea of who this He is going to be, because it says, look at the um, second part of verse 26, it says, The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, the ruler who will come is talking about the Antichrist. But it says the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. Now, any idea who the people were that came and destroyed the city and the sanctuary? The Romans. The Romans came. Remember, they destroyed the city. Is it eighty seventy? Burned everything. Killed. Raped. Just did an unbelievable. They said literally the blood was flowing like a river in the streets of Jerusalem. It was just unbelievable how much murder was going on at that time. And they, the, the ones that survived, were scattered to all parts of the world. Now. The prophecy shows us, though, that there's going to be a rebuilding of this Roman Empire in that same area, and it's going to be a conglomeration of of kingdoms to come together, and one small horn, if you will, is going to come, subdue three kings and remove them, and he's going to actually come into power over this whole kingdom, and he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. That's that one seven-year period that's left for the nation of Israel. And then the scripture says this, and this is where we want to get to. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This Antichrist is going to step into the temple. hasn't been rebuilt yet, but it will be, and it can, it can be pretty soon. I mean, they've actually acquired all the needed materials. They're ready to go. They're just waiting on the ability to be able to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem. Um, whether or not this is part of the, the, the covenant, I couldn't tell you. But, I mean, if, if this was part of the covenant, the Antichrist signs with the nation of Israel that they're allowed to rebuild their temple. It might be a two-state solution. I believe that the Bible teaches there's going to be some kind of a two-state solution for a time. That If that is part of it, the temple could be rebuilt quickly within that first three and a half year period. But when it gets to the midpoint, which is three and a half years after the treaty signed, the Antichrist is going to step into the temple and he's going to set up an abomination that causes desolation, the scripture talks about. Now, there are those who say, well, that's just talking. And I'll get right to you, Kathy. Just a question. Is sure. this through the tribulation or is this the last, the last seven period that we're talking about? 
During the last seven is the tribulation. Oh, okay. That last seven-year period, that, that, they're one and the same. That one last seven-year period left for the nation of Israel, which even though they've been in their land since 1948, the time clock has not kicked back in yet because it will kick back in when he signs the peace treaty. All right. Now, that's part of the reason why we can know uh, that most likely the rapture is going to occur before the tribulation period because no one knows the day of the hour when that's going to happen. But we could count the days to the return of Jesus Christ, you know, from, from the point of this being signed. Go ahead. So, Jim, is the temple going to be built at the beginning of We don't know when it will be rebuilt. It could be started to be rebuilt tomorrow. I don't foresee it. But it does. It, it at least has to be built and finished being built at the midpoint because the Antichrist is going to step into it and put up a statue all right, of himself or something that's going to be... Well, let's look at what Jesus says about it. Put a bookmark here in Daniel. Go to Matthew 24. See, like I said, there are those who say, that well, the abomination that causes desolation was talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did on the altar. I can show you scripturally that it's not Antiochus Epiphanes because Jesus talked about it as a future thing and Jesus was talking about it after Antiochus Epiphanes had already done it. Okay? So... This Daniel prophecy in chapter 9 can't be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. In chapter 24 of Matthew, starting in verse 15, look at what it says. Jesus says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel... Let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get his coat. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So Jesus said, when you see, remember he's talking to the nation of Israel, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel told you about, he said, run for your life. Now if you realize, the Antichrist is going to come. Remember back in the first seal? What was the first seal? Does anybody remember? He opened the first seal and what happened? The Antichrist, the white horse. He goes out and he had a bow but he had no arrow and he was able to conquer, yet at the same time, not with war, with intrigue, if you will, or skill and cunning, he's able to convince the Jews that he's a good guy. And they're going to live in peace and safety for the first three and a half years. They've got their temple rebuilt. They're having their daily sacrifices. But at the midpoint, they find out who he really is. Now, nobody asked a question about something that was very interesting back in Daniel chapter 7. So I want you to go back to Daniel chapter 7. I want you to look at verses 24 and following. I want you to see something here. Again, you're going to see all of this starting to come together and make a whole lot more sense when you put it all together. Verse 24 of Daniel 7 says this, The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. There are some that say that he'll probably try not to call it A.D. or B.C. anymore, you know, because, you know, that refers to Jesus and he's... God instead of Jesus. We don't know what that means. It's I know they're trying. I, the, the spirit of the Antichrist exists. All right. Yeah. You know, they're already trying that. But here's what, look at it says. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, 
times and half a time. Now, if one time equals one year, times, plural, equals two, and half a time, how long is this prophet, how long are they going to be handed over to him for? Three and a half years. He is going to have rule. He's going to have authority. That's why Jesus said, when you see this happen, if you're alive in those days, get out of Jerusalem. The nation of Israel, those that survive, are going to run for their lives and they're going to go hide. We're going to see this all become clear in the book of Revelation as we study it. They're going to have to leave. They're going to run for their lives. They're going to go hide in the desert and God's going to protect them there for a while. But the Antichrist is going to have the power for three and a half years. The last half of the tribulation, he's going to really be in power and he's going to do some dastardly stuff to anyone who believes. And especially he's going after the Jews. Alright? So... The real, the the real, the number, full number. The full number comes in. That's right. But also, Jim, mm-hmm. isn't God is actually having all kind of natural disasters happening during this period of time too? So it is. There's, it's exactly, exactly, and keep that in mind because when we start going back to Revelation and starting putting these pieces together. It'll be easier for us to figure out when this is happening. Like, for example, when it talks about the two witnesses and how they prophesied in the city of Jerusalem for 1,260 days. By the way, whenever you see that, that's three and a half years All right, in the Jewish timetable. And But when? Was it at the beginning half? Was it in the second half? Was it in the middle, crossing the two? Well, you'll see at the end of that time period, after the three and a half years that they've prophesied, and no one's been able to kill them, the beast or the Antichrist is going to be able to kill them. And their bodies lay dead in the streets for three and a half days. And everybody sees it at the same time. And they give each other gifts. Well, one of the things that will help us see that that can't be that they preached during the second half is this. Do you think people are going to be watching TV during the last part of that tribulation period of what we've been seeing, we're going to see is going on and all the things that are happening and all the islands disappear and the mountains fall into the sea? They won't be watching TV and passing out gifts. There will be no shopping going on at that time. So again, that's how you can start to see. I actually believe that the two witnesses begin in the first half. He'll preach throughout the first half. Antichrist, though, when he steps in, says, want no more of this. Want no more of this. You know? But, again, we'll get to that in a little bit. So now let's jump to Daniel chapter 11. And we'll get a little bit further picture here. Alright? Now we're going to start around verse 35 of Daniel chapter 11 and read through the end of chapter 12. Daniel 11 gives us much more detail about the reign of the Medo-Persians and then Alexander the Great and then his four commanders. It goes into great detail. If you want to take a look at the kings of the south and the north and all that kind of stuff, go look at it again. But please have a study Bible with you because it will help you a lot because it will explain things. Uh, but it will talk about who'll, uh, how they will take over and divide his kingdom. Once again, great specific detail is given in this prophecy which has all proven true. And like I said earlier, it'll even tell you who's going to marry who. It's just amazing how that all happened, and it has. But also, we again will see prophecies about Antiochus Epiphanes there in chapter 11 and his conquests. But the description about Antiochus Epiphanes draws to a close in verse 35 of chapter 11. So we'll take a look there. Some some wise will stumble, so they may uh, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. At this point now, verse 36 stops talking about Antiochus Epiphanes and starts talking about the Antichrist, whom Antiochus Epiphanes is a type or a foreshadowing of. Okay? So let's take a look at verse 36. 
It says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor the god with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At, that, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, which is Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans, then the Nubians, in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what Jesus said? But at that time, at the time of that, at, sorry, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. Again, three and a half years. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but, did I, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will, be the out, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Stick with me and I'll explain that. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Now there's a couple of things I want to point out to you. First one is this. Daniel, who's able to interpret dreams... How many times did he say, I don't get it. I don't understand. That should make you feel a little bit more relaxed, okay? There are going to be some things we don't understand. And if Daniel didn't understand some things, neither will we. Yet, don't sit back and say, well, it's just not for us to know. Because if Daniel didn't know it, we can't know it. That's not what this says. He said the words are sealed up until when? 
until the time of the end. Where are we living now, folks? We're in the end times. This is all happening in our day. And then it goes on to say they're closed up and sealed until the time of the end. And those who are wise will understand. So there are things that we should be able to understand about this. This actually should start to make a little bit of sense to us. We should start to see some of this stuff happening on the world stage. Let's just be honest. One of the big conundrums for for years has been, how in the world is all this stuff going to happen with a one world government with a big powerful United States? Well, guess what? It's deteriorating right in front of us. And I know some of us might be saying, let's just hurry up and get to the next election so we can... But you know what? I don't, I don't think we're going to make it. We're being decimated like you wouldn't believe. And even if we make it to that point, don't just blame the president. The people of this world are ready for a one world government. The people are ready for a one big society just to hand out to us. There, there are a few of us that are saying, no, no, but we're being drowned out. You know what? I told some guy just recently, actually it was Ken. Ken and I were talking about this last week. Some guy. Hi, Ken. And um, we, were, we were sitting at lunch and I told him, I said, if I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ, I would be seriously considering a rebellion. I'll be honest with you, I would be, I, I, and, I, and I hate what happened in the Civil War. I hate what happened in the Civil War with families against families. But I'll be honest with you, if I wasn't a child of God through Jesus Christ and living for that world and not this one, I would be at this time saying, who else can we get together that doesn't want to be a part of this and go back to the days of the Revolution and say no. But you know what? I'm not living for this world. The Bible says this was going to happen in the last days. Now part of the reason why I believe we're in the last days is not only because these things are happening, but also because, and that's another study for another time, Jesus said when you see the fig tree bud, know that these things are near, even at the door. And then He said, this generation will not pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. Now it's interesting. He could not have been talking about the generation that heard Him speak. That generation has long since passed away. There's a strong chance, and I believe it is true, that what Jesus meant was the generation that sees the fig tree bud will not pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. Is that I believe it's the Jews coming back into the nation of Israel in 1948. Now, some could say, well, maybe it didn't start until 1967 when the Gentiles weren't trampling on the holy city, when they got to the holy city. But you know what? The Gentiles are still trampling on the city. Uh, The Jews don't even have full control of of the Temple Mount right now. So we can get into all that. I actually think it goes back to 1948. Then we get into this big debate, though. Well, how long is a generation? I mean, it's a generation only 40 years. That's why this guy wrote the book in 1988. 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988. Well, the reason was is he took that prophecy that Jesus said and how this generation won't pass away until these have been fulfilled. And he then said, well, a generation's 40 years. He took that from Psalm 95, verse 10, where God says, I was angry with that generation for 40 years in the wilderness. And um, so he just assumed that a generation's 40 years. Well, actually, you can't go there because in Matthew chapter 1, you see the genealogies. And it was 14 generations from this person to this person. And it was 14 generations from this person to this person. And if you go back and do the math, those generations add up to 51 point something years a generation. So maybe it's 51 something. Well, didn't Jesus talk about 70 years? You know? But then he also said that some might live to 120. We don't know how long a generation actually is, so don't try to do the math. 
But understand this. We are, I believe, the terminal generation, folks. I believe that all that we're looking at here, and this is why it's important for us to know what's going on, it's going to happen in our lifetime. And we're seeing it happen in the news every single day now. Another piece of the puzzle. It's happening rapidly. So, in the time we have left, let's take a look at a couple things here. Alright, first of all, Daniel didn't understand, and there are some things we won't, but don't use that as a cop-out. There are many things we should understand because the words are going to be released. They're going to be unsealed. And that's what, remember, from Revelation, uh, he's told in chapter 22, don't seal up the words of this prophecy. Don't, when, when John wrote what he wrote in Revelation, he was told not to seal up the words. They're to be understood. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we're going there. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. In other words, they've been unsealed. They're not sealed. It's possible for us to have understanding. We have to be willing to pray. We have to be willing to read. We have to be willing to study. We have to be willing to listen. And what God wants us to see will make sense. And it's not progressive revelation. Don't hear that. Okay? There's already been the revelation. It's here. It's been revealed. It's progressive illumination. It's the Holy Spirit in us showing us here, what this means and what that means. All right. Nope. Well, let me back up. Both. Both. All right. He said, "These are closed up until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless, refined, but the wicked will can be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand." It's a mixture of both. It's a mixture of both. Um, but now, let's take a look at what, if look at verse 9, though. All right, I'm sorry, not in the verse 9. Uh, verse 7. He asks, when is this going to be? Or how long is it going to be? And he's told it's going to be a time, times, and half a time. Again, from he sees the Antichrist and all this stuff. He's told three and a half years it's going to happen from that point on. Now, he then says... From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Okay, now we've been seeing the number 1,260 days. Because remember in the Jewish calendar, a year is 360 days. Three and a half years is 1,260 days. Most believe, and I'm of this group, that this is saying from the time that the Antichrist sets up the abomination that causes desolation, all right, until this... There was, until the very end, there's going to be 1,290 days. I believe Jesus comes back on the 1,260th day. Okay? Jesus comes back on the 1,260th day, and we come with Him. But then there's also going to be 30 days of cleansing the temple, the marriage supper of the Lamb, those types of things. We also have 1,335 days, so from the, from the end of the three and a half year period until that if you incorporate the, 1, the 30 days of the 1,290, that's 75 more days later. Um, most believe, and I'm of that group as well, that this is when Jesus is going to set up and judge the nations. Remember, when Jesus comes back, we're going to come with Him, and uh, all those who are alive at that time, who have made it, who are believers during the tribulation, are going to be gathered to Jerusalem. You'll see that in Matthew 24, where it talks about how He sends His angels to the four winds and gathers all the elect who have made it through the tribulation. They're gathered. And he, Jesus actually at that point, and that's from Matthew 25, He starts judging the nations. 
according to how they treated the nation of Israel. Now, for years, we've been hearing the preachers talk about, I was hungry, you gave me something to drink, I eat and thirsty, you gave me something to drink, and so on. And as much as that is true, if you've done it to these, these you've done it to, my, to, to, to me, Jesus said, but really that passage is talking about the, the judging of the nations and the last days. Go real quickly to that, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew 25. Alright, and we'll start in verse uh, 31. Now look closely what it says. Context tells you what was, what's going on. It said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory, and the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the sheep from the goats. Uh, sorry, separate the people. The people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Now, when is this going to be according to this verse? When Jesus comes, and it's the actual second coming. This is when He comes down to the earth to set up the millennial kingdom. He's going to separate the people, like separate sheep from the goats, and it's all determined by how we treated Israel. When you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, it's talking about how the nations treated Israel. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And the nations that survive all the stuff we're going to read about in the last three and a half years of tribulation, they're going to be judged according to how they've treated Israel. I believe that the 1,290 days is, is counting not only the... Coming, Jesus comes back at 1,260, but then there's a 30-day period for cleansing of the temple and those types of things. And the 1,335 days might incorporate the judging of the nations before the millennial reign begins. Kind of a deal. I don't know if that answers your question. That's what people speculate and all. All right. Go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm still not sure about that time frame. Mm-hmm. The 1,260 days, I thought, was also... That is a three-and-a-half-year period, but here at the end it talks about blessed are those who make it to the 1,290 and 1,335. So there's, there's some added days at the very end that are for some purpose. We're speculating as to what it would be. But definitely the temple is going to have to, be re- have to be cleansed from what all has gone on. So, yes, ma'am. This is a very interesting thing. Yes, the temple has to be built in the exact same place. But, and this is another study for, for, for down the road, in Ezekiel chapter 40, you will see that when Ezekiel is taken in a vision to the Millennial Temple, he's told to go measure the Millennial Temple. He actually goes in and sees a temple that hasn't been built yet. We know from the specifications and what he measures that this is a temple that has not yet been built. It's the Millennial Temple. But he's told not to measure the Gentile court or the outer court. That's been given to the Gentiles. Now it's an interesting thing. Archaeologists have done some digging and they have found that the exact spot where the temple used to be most likely actually is a little bit south of where the Dome of the Rock Mosque is. And there's a possibility that you could rebuild the temple right next door to the Dome of the Rock Mosque. The only thing is, if they built it back to the previous specifications, the outer court wouldn't fit. That's too big. But if they built it without the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, it would fit. 
And interestingly enough, as you look at Ezekiel 40, he looks off to the north from the temple and he sees what looks like a city. It could be the mosque that he sees. We don't know. But does it have to be built on the same spot? Yes. Um, But they think that there's a chance that the actual spot might be a little bit more south than they thought. And the Dome of the Rock Mosque, even though sitting on that same area, is not exactly where it is. And they are collecting stuff. Oh, they've got it. They've they've got it. They actually, I, I watched a video a month ago of them actually building the altar. They built it according to specifications with stones from the Jordan River that hadn't been cut by human hand. They pulled them out of the river and they've been formed by the river and very interesting. Where is it? It's in Jerusalem somewhere. <laughs> but I just watched them building it. It's very interesting to watch how they did it. They did it the old-fashioned way as well. Mixing the, the mortar by hand and all. Go ahead. That the, uh, the Israelites are bringing people from all nations. God is drawing them. He's drawing them and drawing them, and that will continue. And I'm hearing that God is drawing them, but it's really just interesting to me because I'm just going to play Well, not just Jews. Christians are involved in it. There are many Christians that are that, that are supporting that and helping pay for, for plane tickets for Jews to get back to their homeland. And that's why you're having all these issues with building, by the way, folks. That's why all the nations around and the Palestinians are fighting all this building that's going on in Israel and in Jerusalem. Because there's so many people coming in on a daily basis. They need to keep building more places for them to live. But yes. All I want you to get from tonight is this. We're about to, not next week, because remember there's no study next week, because I'm going to be in Dallas. But when we come back um, uh, in the uh, first Tuesday in November, we're going to start back in now to Revelation. So many more things are going to make so much more sense. Now that we've done a little bit of this background of what all is going to be going on, who the four kingdoms are, and the fact there's going to be a rebuilding of the Roman Empire, which we see happening in our day. It's the European Union. The Antichrist is going to be one of the rulers in that. He's going to all of a sudden take over three of the kingdoms, subdue them, and he's going to make himself the ruler of the whole deal. He's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. They're going to think he's wonderful. And at the halfway point, he's going to step into the temple, and it is all going to break loose. All right? Let me pray for us, and we'll stop the tape. Lord, again, thank you for this chance to come and to study your word. Lord, I just pray for your spirit to give us insight and and understanding. I found myself a few times tonight talking real fast in hopes to, to get it all in, but I thank you that you're able to help us to grasp what we need to hear and understand what it is that, that you want us to see. Father, may we be willing to study and to pray and to listen and to seek you. And Lord, uh, we're living in, in amazing days. And I thank you for the fact that you've given us your word, that this was going to happen. Otherwise, many of us right now, like we just touched on earlier, we'd be pretty upset with what's going on in our country. But I know that part of what's going on in me and others is we're not living for here. Lord, we still pray for our nation. We still pray for the, for the leadership to, to turn to you. And Lord, raise up those that you've chosen to uh, go in not only to office, but uh, to be in leadership in this country in these days. Because if you tarry, we don't want to live in a country that's going in the direction that it is. But Lord, at the same time, may we not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Lord, may we know that you're about to come get us. And we look forward to that. But may we share the good news with all we come in contact with, that you open that door. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.